All right, everybody should have a study guide that at the top says that's two-sided, but you want to be on the side of the very top, one word that says prophecy. Uh, throw a hand up if you do not have one of those, and maybe we can see if we have enough to get them back. Got some back there. If you have some extra around, you maybe you can take them to some of these folks in the back that need them. Thank you. doing something this morning that's going to be a little bit rare for us at Grace Community Church. Usually we're just coming through uh, wherever we're at in the scriptures, uh, section by section, preaching the word, the, the certain section that's there, the, whatever we land on that day. And so we've been coming through the book of Acts like that. And uh, what we're going to do now is, is pause on that for just a moment. And we're going to look at this topic that's there at the top of your study guide, which is prophecy. Let's pray and we'll get into a little bit of why we're doing that and we'll dig in together. Let's pray. Father, please help us during this time. Lord, we, we want to we see clearly. We want our eyes open to see clearly what you teach in your word. So God, please help us. Help me to teach, God. Help, help us all to hear. Lord, I pray that you would make us like those Bereans that receive the word with all readiness and then search the scriptures daily to see, to see if it was true. I pray, Lord, that you would make us like them. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. You said in your word that we, we're to be doers of your word and not hearers only. God, I pray that you would help us to be doers. Help us to hear your word, ready to submit, ready to obey you, Lord. Lord Jesus, reign over us. Reign over us, Lord, through the scriptures even now. Lord, expose weaknesses in us. And help us to walk with you faithfully. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so why are we addressing this topic of prophecy? And I want to give you three quick reasons why we're doing this. Uh, number one is a more immediate reason is because as we come through the book of Acts together, we're in Acts chapter 21, verse 1 through 16 last week. And I told you what I thought is the main point of that passage. But in the midst of that passage, we've got three... Um, Three occurrences of prophecies. You got Agabus prophesies in Acts 21, uh, beginning in about verse 13 and 14. We, we've got um, the four unmarried daughters who are prophesying in Acts 21. And then we've got that really interesting verse I told you about in Acts 21 verse 4, where it says, Through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. So most immediately is as we've come through that place in the scripture, we've seen prophecy there. This may be one of the last times that we can kind of zoom out as a church and talk about this topic 
uh, as we come through the book of Acts. So that's what we're doing today. That's the, the immediate reason. Secondly, a broader reason is this. I believe that there are two camps that have formed or that, that, uh, that exist in the church today. This is amongst uh, family, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's two camps that I've got concern about that are sort of like two extremes or at least, at least two ditches. Okay? And those two camps are named, the way people uh, term those camps is cessationism and continuationism. Cessationism, if you've never heard that word before, is the idea of what, what if you think about the spiritual gifts, what people often call the revelatory gifts or the miraculous gifts. You read about some of those in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places such as uh, prophecy, uh, tongues, healing, those kind of things. A cessationist or cessationism would say that those gifts were for the apostolic time, the beginning of the church, and those don't exist anymore. They don't function in the church today. Now, a continuationist would say something different. They would say that those gifts do continue on today. They exist in the church today. Now, now I see these two things. So this is a broad reason I want to talk about specifically prophecy. That I see that these two uh, labels, cessationism and continuationism, I see them as two ditches, two, two uh, errors in both camps. And let me say it like this, popularly believed. And what I mean by that is um, I realize that in those camps, you've got people that believe differently. You've got people in those camps that don't believe exactly the same. So I'm not trying to say it's just a uniform label on both sides, but popularly believed. I believe that those two camps are like two ditches. Uh, Pastor Charles Leiter wrote an article on cessationism and continuationism, and he called it the error of extremes. And in the error of extremes, he lays out how Satan often works, right? That somebody has a bad idea or some, some sort of uh, extreme that's, that's put out there, this false doctrine, whatever it might be. And then sure enough, when that happens, you also have reaction doctrine. Well, people react and go into the other ditch. And next thing you know, you've got two ditches that you can fall into that are looking to square in the eye. So that's a second reason is that concern. A third reason is more personal. Um, as I've studied through these things, I believe uh, studying through what the scripture says about specifically prophecy. There's been produced in me a greater confidence, a greater confidence in the sufficiency and finality of the scripture, of the, of the Bible that so many of you have in your lap. Also, what's been produced in me is a greater thirst that God would manifest his power and his wisdom among us. Both of those things have been produced in me as I've studied these things. And I'm asking, Lord, do that in your church. Do that in all of us, creating us a greater confidence in the scriptures as sufficient and final. And creating us a greater thirst that you, God, would manifest your power. That you would manifest your wisdom in ways that cannot be explained by man's doings. And I'm asking God to do that in all of us. So even if you land at a place where you can't go with me with everything that I say I believe that the scripture teaches. If we don't line up perfectly, I'm asking, Lord, do those things in us though regardless. Do that in us as a church. Now, I want you to hear me out. I realize that there are, this, this does mean we're addressing in a lot of ways things that uh, sincere Christians have disagreed over. And I want you to know, and, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, I do not have an axe to grind. I know that there's people even in this church that believe differently on some of these things. And I'm not here to isolate anybody or point out any particular 
uh, person in a way that, that, that they believe. That's not what I'm here for. I want you to hear me as a pastor that I really do care for this church. I sincerely do. I love this church and I want to see us grow in the way that we think about these things and ask God that we would become more like Christ. That we would thirst for His power. That we'd be confident in His work. That, that that really is the heart behind these things. I sincerely do not have an axe to grind. So that means I want you to listen to me with a, a Berean-like expectation. Remember, the Bereans um, received the word with eagerness. Come on, feed me with the truth. And yet they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul preached was true. And so I want you to hear these things today with a Berean-like eagerness. Now, for the sake of clarity from the front end, I, what I hope to go out here is clarity. I want to tell you what I'm against and what I'm for. Okay, here's, here's what I'm against and here's what I'm for. I want to just clearly say those things if I can from the very beginning. Um, so what am I against? So as I told you a moment ago, I see cessationism and continuationism as two ditches. Okay, so some leading voices in, in our uh, Christian culture. These are godly men that love Christ, it seems, would be Richard Gaffin and, and uh, Wayne Grudem. And, the, and you got Richard Gaffin would be the cessationist side and, and Wayne Grudem would be the continuationist side. And, and uh, I, I believe that these men have errors. Both of them have errors in what they teach. That's what I'm putting before you. So, so what am I against? And what am I against? Popular cessationism. Okay. What I mean is the way it's normally thought of with most people that I've interacted with or read from popular cessationism. And here's my concern. It's a deep concern to me that there's an anti-supernaturalism, which is a big problem because we have a supernatural God with a very supernatural book. And my deep concern is that there is a anti-supernaturalism in that camp. Now, beware and be warned. Sometimes that's on paper. Sometimes in what... Um, someone under a cessationist camera believes sometimes that's on paper. Now, your best cessationist, your best ones won't, they'll say that they're not anti-supernatural. But hear me out, that is still a deep concern. The way I see things talked about and the way, way folks in that camp function, it is a concern that there's an anti-supernaturalism. Even though we have a supernatural, amazing God. Now, it, I'm concerned that in that camp, in modern cessationism, that it's, it's just marked by reaction doctrine. That they see people that believe every single uh, miracle, uh, you know, some kind of counterfeit miracle, as if, as, as if it's from God. They see people like that, and they react by not thirsting for the miraculous in their life. They see people that think every single individual should be healed, which is false doctrine, and they react by being afraid to ask God to heal someone. This is my fear. This is my concern. That they see people that there's a, there's a demon around every corner. And they react by there not being uh, the demonic activity anywhere. It's nowhere. So this is my concern, my concern. This reaction type doctrine. And my fear is that modern cessationism, cessationism is moving towards an intellectualism only. That doesn't know what it's like to go to God. Get along with God in prayer for a long time until he moves with power. And it's my concern. As far as the other side of that, popular continuationism. Again, I'm tell telling you what I'm against. Popular continuationism. Maybe you could say it's the other side of it. There's a hyper uh, supernaturalism. 
It's an obsession with the supernatural, not with Christ. Colossians 2.18 tells us about this. It says in Colossians 2.18, they go on in detail about visions. They don't hold fast to the head who is Christ. You ever met anyone like that? It's always about going into details about more and more visions. This is hyper supernaturalism. You can get in some circles like this to where subjective experience becomes more spiritual than objective truth. So what do you mean by that? I'll give you an example. Just say you got two people that are preaching the gospel, let's say, uh, at a carnival somewhere. And they go and they're passing out tracts and they're preaching the gospel. And, and uh, a newscaster comes in and he interviews both of these men. Why are you preaching the gospel here at the carnival today? Why are you preaching the gospel here at the carnival today? And one of them says, one of them says, you know, I just had this dream and I just felt like this is where I need to go. And I just kind of had in my head, you know, somebody with red pants and a black hat and I need to come find this person. So here I am preaching the gospel. And then you got another person that says, well, you know, Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. And Jesus told me in Matthew 28 to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. He tells me to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And my concern in these circles is that what seems more spiritual is that subjective experience rather than the objective truth, even though this is God's God-breathed word. Now, I would say that the best continuationists don't seem to me to be obsessed with um, with supernaturalism or something or, or, or hyper supernaturalism. They don't seem to be obsessed. But as it relates to prophecy on both of these, with the concern about the popular cessationism, as it relates to prophecy, here's my concern that there is a good desire in the cessationist. There's a good desire to exegete the text and they ought to do that. But what I think lacks so often is a longing that God would move with Holy Spirit power as that text is communicated. And my concern on the popular continuationist end would be that maybe they, maybe they believe that prophecy continues on, but it's been trivialized. There's this trivializing of prophecy. I mean, I've heard examples of it explained as people just sitting around in the room with eyes closed, waiting on God. God, what are you saying to us today? And the Bible's sitting right there. It's sitting right there. And so prophecy is trivialized into this thing to where we're just sitting out waiting. And okay, I got a word that we need to go to Chick-fil-A and see a guy that's got you know, dark sunglasses on or something like that. It's been trivialized. It's not the glorious thing that we see in the scriptures. And so I hope you see what I feel like I'm against. Now, what am I for? Okay. What am I for? Two points that relate to those two concerns. Two points that relate to those two concerns. What am I for? Number one, I'm for a strong, immovable adherence to the sufficiency and finality of the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out. Listen to that. Breathed out. By God. And it's profitable to teach, rebuke, exhort, train in all righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped. Listen, for every good work. That means it is completely sufficient and it's final. It's sufficient in this. That every single good work, it, can, it equips you for every single good work. Meaning, there is no good work you could ever do that the scripture doesn't equip you for. You don't need anything else. 
And if we have a strong adherence to the sufficiency and finality of the scripture, here's one thing that that must mean. That anyone that comes along that claims to be in this office of they are an apostle or they are a prophet, that person needs to be immediately rejected. Because that office of apostle and prophet has ceased the way that God got his scriptures to us. Ephesians 2.20, it says through the apostles and prophets, it says it calls them the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In other words, the foundation of the church, that's where the apostles and prophets apply. That means that the scripture was brought about through them. That, that gift, that office was for a certain time. And now it ceased. And so if we hold and adhere to the sufficiency and finality of the scripture, we will reject someone coming in and saying, I am an apostle. I am a prophet. Now, that being said, don't. Don't stop listening to me here. What else am I for? Number two, an intense thirst for God to flex His supernatural power and wisdom among us in ways that can't be understood by man's doings. I want to see, do you want that? I want to see God do that, flex His supernatural power in that way. Do you long for that? And here's another way to say that. And if this sounds like it contradicts you, give me some time. Here's another way to say that. As it relates to prophecy, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39 says this. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. What do you do with this command? My brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. That God would use that in opening our mouths and He flexes His supernatural power and wisdom for the glory of His name. My brothers, desire, earnestly desire, it says, that you might prophesy. Now obviously this is not speaking about uh, desire to speak canonical words or canonical speech. And what I mean by canonical speech is words that can be written down and they're in the canon of Scripture. They have the authority of Scripture. We're not asking God, uh, I desire to, to, to speak prophetically. I'm not asking God, let me speak canonical speech. We're also not asking God, God, would you do that little trivial thing that are in so many continuationist circles. We're not asking God to do that little trivial thing called, that's called prophecy in our day. We're not asking for that either. So what are we asking for? Well, it defines it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 and 25. Where, listen to this. It says, if they prophesy and an unbeliever or, or, or an uninformed man comes in, what happens? It says he is convicted by all. He is held to account by all. The secrets of his heart are laid bare. They're revealed. And he falls on his face and worships God and says, God is truly among y'all. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. There's a story of, of uh, Charles Spurgeon where in the middle of a sermon, he points at a man and he says, Sir, those gloves in your pocket, you stole them from your employer. And he keeps preaching. And the guy, a little terrified, begins to beg, Can I please speak to Charles, to, to, to Charles Spurgeon, to this man? After the sermon was over, can I please speak to this man? And he comes trembling to Charles Spurgeon and says, this is, would, please don't expose me. This is the first time I've stolen from my employer. Please don't tell my mother, he said. 
There's a move of power that God can do that we need, we need to ask, Lord, would you please move in power and put things on display that can only be explained by this is your hand, oh God, that's done this. It's your hand. Now, let me try to set up a problem. I want to try to answer it with Old Testament Scripture, but, but I need to set up the problem first. In the current debate, cessationism and continuationism, and especially as it relates to prophecy, in the current debate, uh, I think that there is a major problem. Now, this is, again, it's a debate between Christian brothers and sisters, sincere brothers and sisters that love Christ. But I think there's a major problem, and it has to do with definition of defining prophecy. And it has to do specifically with defining prophecy in the Old Testament. I believe this is a problem that we need to address and deal with. Now, here's, here's how I, I, I think that I first recognize this problem. So I'm reading, you know, uh, Gaffin and Grudem. You know, I'm reading uh, Cessationists and continue. I'm reading this stuff and I'm listening to debates and I'm digging in, you know, did this a while back and especially over the last month or so. And I'm digging into these things, okay? And one thing I noticed, for example, with Gaffin, we'll use him as an example, that, that he makes an assertion that Old Testament prophecy is, is only canonical speech. It's only that authoritative, thus says the Lord, and Jeremiah write it down in Scripture. That's it. Okay, so that's what he believes. And I remember hearing that and thinking, well, you know, I don't know about that. I remember studying prophecy a few years back. Look at every verse. That doesn't seem right here. Well, well then the continuationists like Grudem, as they talk about these things, uh, the continuationists would, would concede that. They would say, you know, Grudem would concede that. Say, yeah, in the Old Testament, it's just canonical speech. It's, it's prophecy is defined in the Old Testament as only canonical speech, meaning, uh, you know, Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, is scripture. It's authoritative for all believers everywhere. And that's the definition that's put forward by both camps, which I think is an error. So here, here's the problem. This is the cessationist problem. So the cessationist problem, he says that Old Testament prophecy is always canonical speech. That's what he says. And so then he gets into his New Testament and he starts reading verses that just being honest, they, they don't seem to fit into that category. And my concern is that they start doing scripture gymnastics to make verses fit that category. An example of that would be 1 Corinthians 13 where it tells us when prophecy ceases. It says prophecy will end. Prophecy will cease. When? It says when the perfect comes in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, when's the perfect? You keep reading. It says now we see dimly as in a mirror, but then we will see when? Face to face. That, that chapter, this piece of God's word says that prophecy goes. It keeps going on until we see Christ face to face. But again, I think you have to begin to be, you know, to do something. What am I going to do with these texts if the only definition I have from the Old Testament is canonical speech? Also, 1 Corinthians 14, which I'm reading from a minute ago. Paul is literally looking at the whole church at Corinth saying, I desire that all of you prophesy. Do we really think that he means that all of you would be like Jeremiah and have your own book in the Bible? And I think the answer is absolutely not. This is not the kind of speech that he's referring to. Okay, but the continuations has a problem too. Because they can see, yes, Old Testament is, is canonical speech. They can see that. But they're noticing these New Testament verses going, yeah, something's not fitting into that category. And so, for example, Grudem would say these things have fundamentally changed. So going from Old Testament prophecy, the definition has fundamentally changed when you get into the New Testament. Which there's an obvious problem, right? 
I don't have any verse that tells me it fundamentally changed. So what do I do about that? And then here's the problem. Then they begin to try to define prophecy in the New Testament, not having any good Old Testament background or Old Testament definition. They begin to try to define it by their own wisdom or maybe by their own experience, which is how I think you get into a trivial idea of what prophecy is. So there's a problem on both sides. So what's the solution? The solution is we need to study, the, we need to study what the Old Testament puts forward for us as a definition of prophecy. So if we get a definition of prophecy in the Old Testament that's more plain, then we can pull that in and it can help us understand uh, the New Testament and even how to understand it today. Now I want you to know that I'm not just out of my mind. I didn't, you know, I'm not the only one that's, he's got this long ranger idea and he just figured it out. I want you to think that. Um, there's a brother, there's several things that I read that are along the similar lines of what I'm telling you. But I'll give you one example from a, na a guy named Ian Duguid. I think that's how you say his name. Cool last name, Duguid. Um, and, and this guy, is a, he's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's a uh, Presbyterian pastor. And, and I'm telling you that to say, this is not like you're, you know, you're, you're flaming, uh, charismatic, trying to put his peace in. It's not what this is, okay? This is a Presbyterian pastor. Maybe he would even call himself, in a sense, a cessationist. I don't know. But listen to what he says. He says, relatively little attention has been given to the Old Testament background in the prophecy debate. In this study, and it's a study that he's put forward, in this study I want to suggest that the Old Testament uses prophecy, the word prophecy, to describe both capital P prophecy and lowercase p prophecy in ways that may then be reflected into the New Testament. So get what he's saying. He's saying, I don't think enough attention has been given to what the Old Testament defines as prophecy. And then he says, as I've studied that, what I've come to is that there's different shades or different. There, there's a diversity of the kinds of prophecy and the way that word is used in the Old Testament. So he calls it capital P prophecy, which would be like your Moses, Jeremiah and scripturated words that are authoritative like what we hold, you're holding in your lap. And he calls a, another category a lowercase p prophecy, something more broad, something more general by way of definition. Now, my own studies, what I did, and I would encourage you to do this, is to go through and literally take your Old Testament and every place, if, if you're interested in this, where it says prophet, prophetess, prophesy, prophesying, prophesying, every place where it says all these words to look at and say, God, can you give me a definition of this word? Help me understand it from the Old Testament. And after doing that, my conclusion has been that, that what we need to do, what, what, the way we need to understand prophecy is a broader definition of prophecy that includes more than just canonical speech that turns to scripture. We need to have a broader understanding of definition of prophecy before we apply it in a more narrow way like that canonical speech like Moses, like Jeremiah. Okay, for example, the way we think about teaching. Think about teaching in the New Testament. We have a verse that tells us that every one of us in this room who are Christians should be teachers. Matthew 28. It says, go therefore make disciples, teaching them to observe all things I command you. You are commanded to teach. Or another one in Hebrews 5. It says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need somebody to teach you again, the elementary oracles of the doctrine. So, so you get, you've got these verses that say every Christian should be teaching, should be a teacher. Then you have James 3.1, 1, 
that says, let not many of you be teachers. Because they come under a stricter judgment. So what's happening there? How do we understand? By this time, you all ought to be teachers, but, but let not many of you be teachers. How do we understand that? And it's simple. We understand that, that in a broad sense, in a broader way, all of us are meant to teach the gospel to the lost world. Teach our kids. Teach those that we decide we're meant to teach the word of God. But in a more narrow sense, the, this office or this public duty of being a teacher, it says, let not many of you do that. So we have a broader definition of teaching and we understand that affects what we think about teaching and we have a more narrow. And what I'm saying is we need to do the same thing. This is what the Old Testament forces us to do is we try to get a definition. There's a broader definition of prophecy and then there is a more narrow application of it. So let's try to do that. Defining prophecy from the Old Testament. I believe if you turn your sheet over, um, you should see a three, three steps. So we're going to try to do this thing. We're going to try to define this from the Old Testament in three steps. And the first one is the hardest, so lean in. Number one, Old Testament historical narrative, meaning the history laid out in the Old Testament from Genesis to Esther is what we're talking about. So how is the word prophecy defined from Genesis to Esther? How is it, how does it, define, how is it defined in the historical narrative of the Old Testament? Now, obviously, we can't peruse every verse today. We're going to have to, have to generalize some things, but I would encourage you, if you're interested, to do that yourself. Now, the most basic definition that you can get out of that kind of study, if you do a study like that, most basic definition you can get is, is a, prophet, a prophet or prophecy is to be a spokesman for God, okay? Someone who is a spokesman for God. But be careful before you get too narrow with that definition, as in uh, that a spokesman for God is always like Moses who speaks authoritative words uh, that are authoritative for all people, every, all Christians everywhere, and they can be inscripturated and they're in our Bibles. Okay, be careful before you go there. Because there's many places in the scripture, just uh, for example, and, and again, uh, you have to go with me because I'm trying to summarize a lot of things in a quick time, okay? If you think about 1 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 10, 1 Samuel 19, it speaks about, this is just an example, the school, the school of the prophets that Samuel led out. He led out, he was, Samuel the prophet was a leader of this school of the prophets. And you have examples of them in certain places where they're, they're like walking through together in these places, playing these instruments, and, and, and it's like a parade going by, and it says they're prophesying. Now, you got to start asking yourself as you go back, 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 19, you go back and read those, and you have to ask yourself, is, is that way of being a spokesman for God, that prophesying that they're doing, is that canonical speech? Is that what that is? And, and you're like, no, okay, there's no way that there's something else is going on here that's not that. Something more general is happening here than that. And then you especially think that when you see that in those chapters, Saul comes by and he runs into these prophets and it says the Holy Spirit comes on this man and he begins to prophesy. And you look at it and say, what's he doing right there? And I would encourage you to do that on, on your own. What is he doing right there? And what's obvious is this is not Jeremiah, thus saith the Lord, uh, inscripturate these words. So here's what I want to do. Don't write this down. Just try to hear me out on something. This is a real massive summary. And then I want to try to give you one specific verse to close out this point. Okay? So don't write, you don't have to write this down unless you're extremely fast. But I want you to think about this for a minute. 
the diversity. Don't you think about the great, I want to put before you, as I've studied the Old Testament narrative, the great diversity of the way the word prophecy is used, the way it's talked about throughout, throughout this Old Testament narrative, okay? Number one, you have a diversity in the kinds of prophecy. So you got in our scriptures, you've got foretelling is there where they're speaking something that's going to happen in the future and it comes to pass. You guys are going to be taken captive. Israel, you're going to be taken captive in Babylon for 70 years. That's foretelling. Okay. Or you also have just general warnings like 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. You just have a general warning. It says that every seer, every prophet gave this general warning against sin that the people of God should repent. It's not always foretelling. Sometimes it's a more general warning from God. Then you've got uh, secret revealing. Uh, um, you know, like we read just a moment ago, that when they prophesy, the secrets of their heart is revealed. That's all over the Old Testament. In one place, uh, 1 Samuel 9, 9, it calls the prophet seers. Meaning they're seeing things that only God can see. They're seeing something. Uh, uh, Elisha, the king of Syria, kept trying to take his army to attack Israel. But every time he would do it, he'd get crossed off by, the, by, by Israel. And he began to, to look at some of his soldiers saying, who is betraying me here? Who keeps telling the king of Israel where we're taking the army? Who keeps doing that? And the guy looks at him and says, look, Elisha, the prophet in Israel, he tells the king everything you say in your bedroom. It's secret revealing. It's, it's John chapter 4 where, where the, the lady, um, uh, uh, Jesus says, go and call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right saying you don't have a husband. You have five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> okay. My, I just got exposed just now. It's, it's what I'm describing to you a minute ago about Spurgeon. He's not standing up, thus saith the Lord, and scripturate those words. It's not what he's doing. But he is standing up saying, those gloves in your pocket were stolen and God gave him that. And then, of course, you've got the very words of God that, that are, that are uh, spoken with, with this authority that lands in Scripture that is authoritative for all Christians, all believers everywhere for all time. Now, keep going. There's a diversity in the kinds of people that prophesy. You read that Old Testament, you've got the office of prophet. You've got the office of prophet, Moses, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, and on. This office of these men that speak canonical speech is what they do. But you also have got men that are not prophets who prophesy. Numbers 11 says the 70 elders gathered together and, and God put the spirit, of Mo, the spirit that was on Moses, put it on them. And they prophesied, but they never did it again. These are men prophesying. They're not prophets. You've even got ungodly men prophesying, not in a false sense. Saul, when he was in the midst of his ungodliness and begins to send soldiers to go get Samuel and go get David, every time they would show up, if you remember that, reading that in your Old Testament, they would show up and the Spirit would come on and they would prophesy. These are ungodly men even being allowed to prophesy. And you've got to wonder, like, what, what exactly is he doing there? And you're starting to see a diversity in the kind of prophecy. There's a, there's a um, diversity in the kind of revelation. For someone to be a spokesman for God, something's got to be revealed to them. And then communicated out, revealed and communicated, right? Well, there's a diversity in the way it's revealed. It can be revealed by angels. It can be revealed by an audible voice from God. It can be revealed by this still small voice. It can be revealed by dreams and visions. But there's a difference in the way it's revealed. And I'm going to show you a verse in a minute that says that even the clarity 
The clarity with which the revelation is revealed can vary. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Number 12. There can be also variety in the authority with which these words are communicated. It can be variety or diversity in the authority with which they're communicated. Think about what has to happen for words to become in Scripture, to be our Scripture. God not only gives an incredibly clear mouth-to-mouth type revelation, not only that, but God must, because it's given to a fallible, sinful man like Moses and the rest, right? And so God even has to help with the communication of those words and the inscripturation of those words. God has to divinely help at every step. But here's what's interesting. God doesn't always do it that way. We've got an example in Acts 21 verse 4 where through the Spirit... They're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But we know it's God's will for him to go to Jerusalem from the rest of the scripture. So what's happening there? Something has been revealed to them that Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, what's going to happen is you're going to face afflictions and imprisonment. And then they made a wrong application, their application. They, had to, they got that right, but the application was therefore Paul don't go. And through the spirit, they commanded him not to go. That's not the same as Jeremiah does say to the Lord, here's your scripture. It's not the same. So here's what I'm trying to highlight. That the claim that Old Testament prophecy is just flattened into one category. That it's just canonical speech. That claim does not fit this diversity. That's the simple thing I'm trying to communicate. And let me just give you one verse so that I'm not just summarizing. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 25. Get there as quick as you can. 1 Chronicles chapter 25. You can write this down if you like. It's helpful to you. If all Old Testament prophecy is in one category of canonical speech, how does this verse, for example, fit? And my contention is that there's many verses like this throughout your Old Testament. And your New First Chronicles 25 verse 1. David and the chief of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. Now how do you put that in that category? Did that just say they prophesied with musical instruments? Okay, keep, keep, keep reading. So these musical instruments are going. Go, go down to verse 4. Hashabiah and Mattathiah, six under the direction of their father, Jeduthun, look, who prophesied with the lyre, and what are they doing? In thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. The picture of this prophesy cannot be put in the same category as Moses or Jeremiah or Joel canonical speech, but must put it, be put in a more general, broader category, a small P prophecy, not a capital P prophecy. Uh, Matthew Henry, who I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I think that he would have turned himself as a cessationist. Yet, when he's just giving commentary on just this verse, and not speaking any kind of system, he's just giving commentary on this verse. Listen to what he says. Matthew Henry says about this verse, to prophesy in this place, as, in, as opposed to other places in the Old Testament, to prophesy in this place means... Praising God with great earnestness and devout affections under the influences of the Holy Spirit. So my contention there is that you cannot uh, draw a line and flatten all of Old Testament prophecy is canonical speech. Okay. All right. Number two. It's be a little more simple. 
This is a warning against exactly what I'm saying. You see this in Numbers 12. You can go ahead, go ahead and flip to Numbers 12. In Numbers 12 and 11, we have some warnings against flattening all prophecy into one category. This would be like uh, maybe uh, a word uh, from the Old Testament to a popular cessation. Okay? Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Now, it says, Miriam and Aaron. Now, pause. Keep this in mind. Miriam is a prophetess. The third time in our Bible that we have this word prophet or prophetess is in Exodus chapter 15 where it calls Miriam a prophet. So she is a prophet. Okay, this is about the fifth. Numbers 12 is, I believe, the fifth occurrence of this idea of prophecy. We're going to see in just a minute. Miriam remembers a prophet. And Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, and I want you to notice how prophecy gets flattened right here. Listen. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So, you know, Miriam's a, Miriam's a prophet, Moses a prophet. And she says, look, God spoken through Moses. Has he not spoken through us also? And there's this flattening of prophecy into one category, like I believe often happens in cessationists and continuationist circles. Has God not spoken through us all? And then God begins to answer that. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forth. Now he's looking at Miriam and Aaron here. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. What the Lord just did for us is made a clear distinction in your Old Testament of Miriam as a prophetess, but not like Moses. I reveal myself to some prophets. I reveal myself in visions and dreams. But with a man like Moses, this scripture speaker like Moses, I reveal myself clearly, mouth to mouth, not in riddles. And you say, wait a minute. Why, why does God reveal things with more or less clarity as he obviously does here? Why does he do that? And you don't necessarily need an answer to that because all you got to say is, look, God is wise and he does it. We know for sure that's what he does. He communicates to Moses mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles like he does with those other prophets. So here's a clear distinction that we, we should not flatten all prophecy into one category. So Miriam was a prophet, but not like Moses. Um, in 1 Samuel, we see that the school of the prophets, they prophesy, but not like Samuel. We see the same thing in Acts 21, that the, those brothers at Tyre, they prophesied in, in Acts 21.4, but not like Agabus. That New Testament Jeremiah Agabus, not like him. They didn't prophesy like him. And in the same way, when we say, God, I want to obey 1 Corinthians 14.39, it tells me to desire earnestly to prophesy. What I'm not saying is, make me, uh, I want to prophesy a little bit, not like Jeremiah. I want to prophesy a little bit, not like Moses, that sort of office of a prophet has ceased. Go to, go to Numbers 11. So back up one chapter here, Numbers 11. 
I need to speak quickly here. So if you understand this story, if you understand the story in Numbers 11, the story goes like this, that Moses is burdened as he seeks to shepherd these people. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the spirit that's on you, Moses, and gather up those 70 elders, and I'm going to put the spirits on you, I'm going to put it on them. That's what I'm going to do. And so they do that. They bring these 70 elders in. Two of them actually don't come. They stay in the camp. So 68 come in. And God takes the spirit that's on Moses and puts it on these men. And it says, and they prophesied, but they never did it again. In verse 25, but they never did it again. Okay? So, so again, you're thinking, what did they do actually? Not like Moses, but they prophesied, but, but not like Moses. They never did this again. Uh, okay. And then those two that were left, they prophesied in the camp. Joshua comes and Moses says, Moses, tell them to stop. They're prophesying in the camp. Tell them to stop doing that. And, and, and Moses says something. We'll read it in just a minute. That's really, really interesting. Okay. So here's some, obser some observations from, from Numbers chapter 11 from this story. Again, we see men prophesying, but not like Moses. That's number one. Number two, do men prophesy that are not prophets? Yes. Uh, verse 25. They did this, but they never did it again. These men prophesied, but this was not, they were not in the office of a prophet. Okay. And then third observation is, is look at Moses' desire. This is interesting. Look at verse 29. Numbers eleven twenty nine. He comes to Moses. Hey, stop these guys from prophesying. In verse 29, Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel return to the camp. So think about those words for just a minute. What is he desiring? Oh, that God would put His Spirit on all of God's people and all of them would prophesy. And you're already thinking about stuff you already know in the New Testament. Oh, that God would put His Spirit on all God's people and, and all of them would prophesy. What's He wanting to see happen? He's not saying, I want to see all of God's people become Scripture speakers or give a canonical speech to be Jeremiah's, thus saith the Lord. But He's talking about something. What is it? And you skip forward to Joel chapter 2. And that prophet in Joel 2, you don't have to flip there. But he says, listen, a time is coming when I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young and your old will prophesy. Your maidservants and your men servants will prophesy. He's saying there's a time coming when the spirit of God is going to be poured out in a different way. In a new way. In this new covenant. And it's going to create this prophetic element in all of my people. And we see that play out in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out in this new covenant. And, and then the Holy Spirit is poured out. And Peter quotes Joel 2. This is what was said to you. That I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters prophesy. And your men and women and, and young and old and men suffer. So they're going to prophesy. And, and what are we talking about there? We're obviously not talking about they're all going to have this prophetic element as in they're all going to be like Jeremiah. But something's there. Something's, they're going to be a spokesman for God in a powerful way. But not canonical speech. And of course that keeps playing on when you get to 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. Desire. Listen to the command. Desire earnestly to prophesy. And I think he's talking about what he said in Joel 2 and what, he, what Moses desired in Numbers chapter 11. Alright, third, third point here. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now, this is a warning against trivializing prophecy. 
So maybe you could say this is an Old Testament word to the continuationist, the popular continuationist. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, imagine that, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you've not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. That's interesting. He says, look, if a man comes claiming to be a prophet and he gives you a sign or a wonder and it actually comes to pass, but he believes wrong things about God, he worships a false God, he has false believing or false living, don't be scared of that man, move away from him. Even though he performed the sign. Now here's the question. How serious is this? How serious is this? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Now if that doesn't encourage you not to trivialize prophecy, I don't know what will. How serious is this? You will die. That was a rule here in the Old Testament. Go to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Like I said, if I'm looking at those two camps and one says that prophecy is completely done altogether, not even a little peak prophecy, uh, and one camp says, yeah, it keeps going, but they trivialize it, that's the camp I'm speaking to. Those are trivialized. Look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak. Now listen. This needs to get the attention of anybody that is in the circles of God told me this and God told me to do that. And I was eating breakfast this morning and God told me to do this. And you're just in a flippant culture of God told me, God told me, God told me. If you're in those circles, listen to this verse. The prophet who presumes to speak a word of my name that I've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. This is serious. It should not be trivialized. Verse 21, and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so what we have here, as we think about how you should respond to this, what we have here is go back to what I told you. I, I, I want, I want to, I'm praying for our church. Oh God. That we would be a people that have such a confidence in the word of God and therefore reject false apostles, false prophets, meaning anyone that claims this title, that claims this office of I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet. That is ceased, Ephesians 2.20. And that God would give us confidence in the words that he has for us written. And at the same time, that we would have a longing that God would flex his supernatural power, that we would not be anti-supernatural. And you see it in our prayer life. And you see it in the way that we, the way that we expect God to move. You see it. And we, we, we wouldn't be like that. But we would long God. Flex your supernatural power through our words. God, let us prophesy. In the proper sense. In the biblical sense. And so here's a, a couple of things. Or, or three things that I would say quickly as far as how I would encourage you to respond. I, I, would, I would ask you to consider 
those titles of cessationism and continuationism to, to consider avoiding those. There's some, you know, you know, like I know that there are situations where uh, titles can be helpful uh, and there are situations where they're very, very unhelpful. And I would encourage you that this might be a situation where we say we want to be biblical, not, not put into one of these camps. Second thing I would say is consider what to do with 1 Corinthians 14.1. I really want to encourage you to consider what do you do with 1 Corinthians 14.1, 1 Corinthians 14.39, where it says desire, it says it twice, desire earnestly to prophesy. What do you do with those verses? And I want to encourage you to get by yourself and ask the Lord, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I respond to that? And then I'll just say this, and kind of a final thing, and then, and then I'm going to mention something a little more broad than this. If you say, you know what, uh, sticking to my, I like, kind of like the cessationist word, and I like the camp, I'm sticking to that camp. Here would be my urging to you. Be a cessationist. Not like the modern kind. Be a cessationist like Charles Spurgeon then. Be like him. My, my understanding is that Charles Spurgeon would, would have claimed uh, or would have um, called himself a cessationist. That's my understanding. I could be wrong in that. But that's my understanding. And so my encouragement to you, that if you're going to stay in that camp, if you're going to stay there, then be like Spurgeon. Okay? And I want to read something to you from Charles Spurgeon. He says this one time while he was preaching. He said, While preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd. And I said, there's a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Now a city missionary, when going his rounds, met with this man. And seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, he asked the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. I have been to hear him. And under his preaching, by God's grace, I become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall and took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker. And that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that, but he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence of profit out of it. And I did take nine pence that day and four pence was the profit. But how should he know that? I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first... I thought this was so funny. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But, but afterwards, but afterwards, I went and the Lord met, met with me and saved my soul. And he goes on to say, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all things that I ever did. Now here's what I'm saying. I, I, like I said, I'm not for this trivial version of prophecy. That's not what we read about. When Jesus said you have five husbands and one you have now is not your husband. And she says, man, I perceive you're a prophet. That's not a trivial version of prophecy. I'm not suggesting we sit around and wait 
to get some sort of words from God to go to Chick-fil-A and there's a guy in red pants. I don't think we should do that. We have God's Word. We dive into God's Word. But what I do want to create in us is a thirst that our God is not limited to our boxes. That our God is a powerful, supernatural, glorious God. And I want us to thirst for Him to put that power on display. And one way I think we pray that is we say, God, You told me to earnestly desire to prophesy. And I want to do that. Now, let's close like this. Go to Deuteronomy 18. Quick gear change. And we're going to close like this. You know, you got this topic out here. And, and maybe, you know, maybe uh, you agree with me. Uh, and you're encouraged. Maybe you disagree with me. But you're still encouraged. Maybe you disagree with me, but you're not encouraged. Hope not. Deuteronomy 18. What I want us to talk about for just a minute, just, just for a second, is the ultimate prophet. The prophet of all prophets. Alright? That's where it all comes from. You might not believe everything I've just laid out, but you've got to believe the ultimate prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Now, Acts 3 tells us that's talking about Jesus. It quotes it. Acts 3 tells us that's talking about Christ. That God told Moses, Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet. Not just a prophet, the prophet. I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among your brothers. He's going to be a man like you. And that's talking about Christ. Now this is interesting. Look at, look at the context here. Go back to verse 14. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And that's the context. Here's the context. That as people, we tend to look for, man, I want, a, I want one of those otherworldly messages. Can I get a message from the divine? And so you got these people that are doing that in a sinful, wrong, godless way. But we tend to be like that. I want a message from another world. And he says right here, listen, I'm raising up a prophet for you like Moses I'm raising up the Christ for you, and He will be a prophet. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 says, In various times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. We know God because of the Son, because of Him. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1.14 says, The Word... The communication of God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. No one has seen God. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He's made Him known. Jesus is our prophet. He's the one that we look to. And He is the prophet of all prophets. He makes God known to us. Now here's what's interesting. He says in Deuteronomy 18.50, I'm going to raise up a prophet like Moses. But then look at the specific situation he points to. Go to verse 16. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, y'all remember this? When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. <laughs> so... 
God comes down on Mount Sinai and He speaks to the people in an audible, booming voice. And these people are scared half to death. And they say, Moses, tell Him don't do that anymore. Tell Him we're going to die if He speaks directly to us like that. We need a mediator. We need a man. Moses, you go and get the Word and bring it back to us. And, and, and God says, I'm raising up a prophet like that. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for us all. That He goes up on the mountain, gets what we need from God and about God and delivers it to us. He is the ultimate prophet. He's the greater than Moses. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to me, I thought this was interesting. They are right in what they have spoken. <laughs> They're right. They're going to die if I speak like that again. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is the prophet we ultimately must listen to. Now he said a lot of things and he lived out a lot of things. In fact, he is word of God incarnate. It's what he is. But I'll mention one thing on the cross. He says he screams. Last thing he says, screaming at the top of his lungs as he hangs on the cross. It is finished. I mean, it's done. I have died, laid down my life, taken your sin, taken the wrath that you deserve. It's finished. The work is complete. Just come to me and you'll be saved. He says here, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require him. You must listen to the ultimate prophet. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and let us dig into this, Lord. And I pray, God, that it would be a help to our souls. Lord, on things, on things like this, Lord, where there are in, in, within your church, Lord, where there are disagreements among brothers and sisters in Christ, they're sincere and love you. God, you told us to forbear one another in love and Respect one another and care for one another. I pray that you'd help us to be like that. But even more than that, Lord, I pray, God, that you would work in us a deep, deep confidence in the finality and sufficiency of the Scripture, God, and that you would work in us a deep, deep thirst. That you would put your power and your wisdom on display through us, Lord. God, help us to know how to look at your word and how to obey it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.